welcome to Out of the Box Stories. I'm your host, Allison Paradise. Our guest is Gus Kendrick, Project Coordinator at SMS Collaborative. Gus was born and raised in the Pacific Northwest, and he has a background in environmental research and conservation. His favorite things to do are to go outside and anything to do with music. Gus and I met about a year ago as he started working on the ACT Label project. Gus is actually one of the people who's behind the audits for the ACT Label. During our conversation, Gus explains how the ACT audit process works. He then goes on to share how he brings sustainability into pretty much every conversation he has. As always, I didn't quite expect our conversation to go where it went, but it ended in a really beautiful place with some fascinating musings on how we can actually turn the tide and perhaps truly do something different to be more sustainable in our lives. There couldn't be a more fitting interview for Earth Month. Gus joined me from his home in Snohomish, Washington, which is about 30 miles north of Seattle. Hey, Gus. Hey, Allison. How you doing? I'm well. How are you today? Good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on. I really appreciate it. I'm so excited for you to share your perspective because it's totally unique from what we've heard before. I appreciate it. Would you mind starting by telling people how you are connected to Green Labs? Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Gus Kendrick. I am a project coordinator with SMS Collaborative. And we act as a third-party auditing arm of the ACT Label Project. And for anybody who's not familiar with ACT Labels, they work as a shorthand of an LCA or life cycle assessment to verify the environmental impacts of products in the life science industry. And so my day-to-day job is to work with manufacturers to do the analysis of their products to get ACT ACT labels issued, which work as a marketing and information tool. That was really well said. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) How did you get into this line of work? I got my undergraduate from Washington State University, go Cougs, in environmental science. Um, And then from there, I worked briefly in environmental conservation. Give a shout out to the Phoenix Conservancy at Pullman and uh, Chris Duke. They were the first people to sort of hire me in the world of environmentalism and sustainability. Um, And then from there, I just kind of worked my way around until I found SMS Collaborative and Annie Bevan, who was uh, kind enough to take a chance on a young guy like me to help them do their sustainability consulting and their work. So uh, it's been a pretty quick but exciting path to get here. And what's it like? So practically speaking, what does it look like when you go through an audit for an ACT label? Yeah, great question. So an ACT label... Um, like I said, works as a shorthand of an LCA or life cycle assessment where we're still looking at the entire lifetime of a product, um, which begins at the manufacturing facility. So we do kind of a high level analysis of the 
environmental impacts of a manufacturing or distribution facility, which are things like their energy consumption, their water consumption, and their waste generation. And then we follow that through to the actual material uh, composition of a product. So we'll do an analysis of do products contain any harmful chemicals, whether that's carcinogenic or mutatious or bioaccumulative. From there, we'll look for sources of sustainable materials in the product, which are things like recycled content or bio-based product. Um, and then we'll look at the impacts of using a product, such as their energy consumption or their water consumption. And then finally, we look at what's going to happen at the end of life of a product. How is it going to be disposed of? What's coming out of a product at the end of its lifetime? Um, what responsibilities are manufacturers taking for their products at the end of the life? So it really does track through an entire life cycle of a product, and we're just doing our best to communicate the environmental impacts of a product in the life science industry so that it's either large groups or independent companies or anybody who's purchasing um, products from the life sciences division will be able to understand the environmental impacts and have some responsibility in their procurement. It feels like when you're describing it, like a lot of work. I mean, that's a long list of things. So what is it like when you work with manufacturers? Are they, is it relatively easy? Are you able to get all the data that you need? Or does it take a really long time? Or what's that process like? Because that's so much information, all the way from the manufacturing facility to what's in the product, to how much it uses when it's in use. It's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. I think we were just taking a look at the total number of products that have now come up for ACT certification, and it's almost a thousand individual products what? across uh, yeah across a wide range of categories, and um, so we are collecting a lot of information, which in every single instance is always a little bit different. You know, different companies and different manufacturers have a lot of uh, individual traits to them and differences between them. So every time we approach a new ACT certification project, um, we really have no idea what we're going to get. And uh, it's a fun little mystery to, to work through and solve. You know, Some manufacturers are really great about how well they can collect information internally and that kind of reflects in the audit and others are more difficult and they end up taking more time or being a bit more of a headache. But at the end of the day, the fact that we're able to get this information out to consumers and give them that source of, you know, pride and responsibility in their procurement, I, I think it's a good thing to, to go through the struggle. It seems like it. For you too? Yeah, I think it's, it's something that a year ago I had almost no comprehension of, and today it's my day-to-day -day life. And you know, I'm, I'm proud of the work that we do as a team over here, for sure. So when you were explaining how you got into this work, you started by talking about your undergraduate degree. And I'm curious, what drew you to that field? Great question. I think part of it had to do with growing up in Washington State. For anybody who has never lived in Washington State, it's something that you kind of have to come and experience. Um, we're so lucky to have this great biodiversity. We have a wide range of uh, climates and ecosystems and variety. And so when you're a kid, 
growing up, you just get to experience so much of that natural world and that natural wonder. And for me, I was always an outdoorsy kid and I, you know, just really got to enjoy hiking and fishing and camping and all those things from a young age. And then as you get older, you start to have this like understanding that these spaces can't be taken for granted because they won't always be here if they're not protected. So from a pretty young age, I felt that there was some sort of responsibility for me to protect these spaces for the next generation. And the easiest way to do that was to focus on environmental science, which thankfully was something I was good at to begin with. Uh, you know, I think if my calling had been something that I was bad at, this would be a much different uh, conversation, but I had some great mentors when I was young and a great program at Washington State. Just getting into environmental conservation was really big for me. And then I didn't know where I wanted to take it, but I knew if I wanted to have the biggest impact, it would probably be in corporate sustainability. And so that's what ended up attracting me to SMS Collaborative is the work that they do throughout um, not only life sciences, but building sciences as well. It's kind of the two domains that we play in. Even though it's pretty early on in my career, I'm pretty excited about the impact that we're beginning to have. What age did you know that this is what you wanted to do or that you wanted to be doing something in conservation or environmental sustainability? You said you were young, but what age? It was probably around 16. You know, seems like when you're in high school, guidance counselors tell you you have to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life and to just stick to it. So at least at this point, I'm carrying through, but um, who knows? So for now, it's what I want to do. Maybe in the future, my priorities will change. But knowing that uh, people like me will all be able to grow up and experience the joy of safe and beautiful outdoor spaces is one of the things that gets me out of bed in the morning. So, And where do you live now? Uh, right now, I am about 30 minutes north of Seattle um, in a little town called Snohomish. So do you get a chance to experience being outside and all the great beauty that you love about Washington State? All the time, you know. Yeah. Uh, now that we just had daylight savings, when you're whoever, when or whenever you might be listening to this, it's now March 17th as of our recording, and it's finally being sunny here. Uh, <laughs> it tends to be gray from about October till the end of March, but uh, today it's sunny, so hopefully I'll get out and have a little outside time even today. Very nice. And what are your favorite things to do when you're outside? Uh, hiking is probably one of my favorite things to do. Just sitting around, being in the sun, hanging out with friends, finding a brewery with an outdoor seating area. <laughs> what do you love about hiking? It's, it's one of those experiences where you can feel both totally in control and totally out of control and just feel one with everything around you, but also so tiny and irrelevant in some ways. And it's just a great thought exercise to get out, move around, breathe some fresh air. There's some amazing trails around here. Um, I have friends that are big into like the climbing communities and things like that. So if you grew up in Washington, you just kind of embrace this, I don't know, granola, hippie, outdoor uh, lifestyle that uh, is really fun if you can get into it. So. I think what you say about that experience of feeling like you're connected with everything and also so, so small is one of my favorite things about hiking in, or I should say, on a ridge trail. 
because the ridge trails really give you that feeling of, oh my gosh, this place is so vast and I'm so itty bitty. Do you have a favorite ridge trail that you've been hiking? Oh, not here. I haven't found any mountainous spaces yet here in Michigan, but in California, yeah, for sure. West Coast has lots of great ridge trails. Yeah, we're pretty lucky, aren't we? Uh-huh. Yeah. So going back to the ACT program for a minute, I'm curious from your perspective as someone who's sitting on the, let's say, on one side of the process, just observing what people are sending to you, have you noticed that there's any change in how the industry has evolved over the last year or so in terms of what they're doing around sustainability? Or are you still having the same kind of initial conversations with everybody? Do you think that there's a shift that's happening? I think there definitely has been a change in recent years. And obviously everything is on a case-by-case basis. It's really hard to make blanket statements about any industry or any organization. But I think it's starting to change where Sustainability in general is no longer being seen as sort of a dreadful requirement, but almost an optimistic opportunity for companies. It's one thing when a company is wanting to collaborate or work towards a goal because they feel they have to. And there's another when they've been educated enough to understand that this is an opportunity to their benefit as well as everybody else's. And that's just been a slow trend over time and in sustainability in general is the more people who can join this sort of movement will be able to realize that it's a win-win all the way around. It's becoming more financially reasonable and financially beneficial for manufacturers or organizations in general to comply with various sustainability requirements um, because it's going to end up driving more business their way, making them more profitable, um, as well as future-proofing their business and allowing them to operate for the longest and most efficient time. What does it feel like to be in a space where that shift is starting to happen? And you've been obviously thinking about this for so long. You've been in this space for really for quite some time as let's say one of the people who was there early on. And somebody said something to me recently about how people who are at the beginning of movements sometimes really resent when the movement gains a lot of momentum because they don't feel special anymore, which I thought was really interesting perspective. And I'm kind of curious since you're kind of in it right now, what's the feeling? Is it the feeling that people who've been in this for a while are kind of like, oh, well, thanks for joining the party or like kind of down on the, on the people who are coming in, or is it really a kind of embracing community of people where everybody's like, thanks for being here. We're so excited. Is it still welcoming like that? Or what's your, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I guess it's, it's one of those things about any movement. And if we're talking about sustainability or the green movement in general, um, people have been laying sort of the grassroots for this for, decades for generations. It was early on in the 60s and 70s when we had great legislation like the Clean Water Act and the Clean Air Act passing through. Um, That's sort of the start of what you might define as the modern sustainability movement. And, you know, 
that was great work. And then there were periods where economic downturn or whatever it might have been had stagnated things and now it's starting to pick up again. Um, and for whatever reason, I think there is that animosity towards people that are kind of jumping on later. You know, why haven't you always been a part of this movement? Or um, I see it a lot of the kind of judgment that people like to think maybe certain groups aren't doing enough or aren't doing as much as they should. But one of the things you have to come to terms with at the end of the day is anything that gets us that one step closer is to the benefit of everybody. Um, and some people have more to give, some people have less. If you have the time, if you have the resources, if you have the education, I think you have that responsibility to do what you can because we're talking about the fate of everybody on this planet. You know, everybody is affected by the things we do every day that infect the earth and the planet and our environment and those things. Um, so at least from my personal perspective, I'm welcoming and welcoming to anybody who wants to listen, anybody who wants to work with me or, um, you know, wants to just learn more about what they can do. And I think that's really the only realistic way that we're going to make progress is just by doing our best to let everybody in, explaining ourselves and talking about why this is important and why we think it matters. Yeah, once again, really well said. Thank you for sharing that. You're too kind, Allison. No, no, it's true. Given what you've seen and your experience so far, where do you see there being the greatest opportunities for improvement and sustainability, whether it's through the ACT program or in any other space in your life? Yeah, great question. You know, that's one of those things that uh, probably has been more heavily researched than I'll ever be able to read about. But, you know, from my understanding, the biggest things we can do would be to change how our society is structured as a whole, um, how we generate our energy, how we do our food system, and then how we do our corporate responsibility. Those are probably some of the biggest drivers of uh, climate change or environmental degradation. Things we do on the individual level are very important. Like I know, for instance, both of us don't, don't eat meat and things like that. But on the larger scale, it's really about how we as a society organize ourselves and reorienting that to not conquering the environment, but living in harmony with it. It sounds like you've given this some thought. So can you elaborate a little bit more on what you might envision society restructuring as to be more sustainable? Yeah, you're making me think I should have prepared more notes for this interview. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's so hard to tell people what I think the, the utopia is going to look like. Um, probably the easier answer is just to say utopia is going to take the best and brightest of all of our society to come together and agree that we need to stop doing things that are going to harm the earth moving forward. And that's going to be things like reducing our carbon output and um, regeneration of soil and eliminating harmful practices like clear cutting and things like that. There's just an infinite number of possibilities for everybody in every single industry that with the right understanding, all of these pieces can come together um, to create a world where we don't have to fear about natural landscapes being taken away too soon or um, environmental resources wearing out or 
even just being able to provide enough food for everybody on the planet. So you've spoken pretty broadly about opportunities for sustainability. And I'm wondering, sort of to bring it back personally, because some of these big systems, people listening, they're not able to change, but they are able to do something on an individual level. So what, for you personally, have been the things that you've changed in your life or the things that you do that you're aware of with sustainability in mind? Mm. Yeah, on a personal level, probably the biggest change I made was to stop eating meat. And that was going on six or seven years ago. Um, I had numerous reasons for doing it, but um, it was one of those things where the way the animal agriculture system is designed today, it's hard to justify its environmental impacts to its output. You know, that's not to say there aren't lots of benefits to animal agriculture in terms of things like regenerative agriculture, but the food system the way it is today, I think that was probably something that needed to change. And then beyond that, it's really just about talking to people and trying to educate them on the things that I've had the benefit of being able to study and learn um, and other people just may not be aware of for whatever reason. And, you know, that goes back to the idea of really not excluding anybody from being a part of this movement because we need everybody to be a part of this movement. You know, I don't personally claim to be, you know, the most sustainable guy on earth because that's just probably not true. There are people that do it better than me and there are people that do it worse than me. But on a personal level, my best interest is just about doing what I think is best and educating as many people to do that for themselves as well. And how do you do that out in life? Just talk to people. Oh, you just talk to people. So what does that yeah. look like? Just anytime, you know, if you get together with your friends and talk about work, I, I do the same with my friends. It's just that my work happens to be based around sustainability. And I just might happen to go off on a rant of whatever topic that has been stuck in my head that week. So if you're, if somebody were to meet you at a bar, just randomly, do you start talking to them about sustainability? Probably depends on what time of the night it is. If it's early in the night, maybe I'd be polite and let them go on about it. But if it's later in the night, yeah, I might might have to get in their ear and let them know what I think. How do you broach this topic with just a random at a bar? I mean, how do you approach any random person at the bar? You just got to pick something and start the conversation and see where it goes. You could, you know, it's, it's wrong to generalize people, but sometimes you could tell whether or not they're going to be in, intrigued in this conversation or whether they have a background where maybe they're just unfamiliar with it. You know, it's not every day that I want to go up and talk to people about it because sometimes people get tired of thinking that this responsibility needs to fall on the individual person. And yeah, there is an individual amount of responsibility, but larger, more important factor here is that the way society organizes itself, the way business is organized, that's what's really going to lead to this larger sweeping change. So even if I went to every bar in my entire country over the next 10 years and talked to as many people as possible, it still wouldn't have as much impact as if the 10 largest or biggest polluting companies on earth decided they were going to change their policies. So it's important that we all know what we're doing and have a vision. But at the end of the day, it's, it's, uh, it's not always up to the individual person. I'm going to push back on that because I disagree. I think if you talked to 
people in bars in this country for 10 years, which is a very long time, and people changed where they spent their money, it would necessarily change how corporate America or how corporations globally responded. Because most of what, to be fair, most of what corporations are doing are responding to their customers. And most of their customers might say that something is important to them. They might say the environment matters, but they're still choosing next day shipping from a company that has not shown itself to be sustainable, for example, or hasn't even bothered to look to see what's what are the materials of that chair that I just purchased or you know what's in the food that I'm buying? Where does it come from? Mm-hmm. Allison is a very responsible shopper, for those who don't know her. Uh, She will read through every ingredient list, and uh, she'll figure out the impacts of whatever she's buying beforehand. But, you know, I think you're right that there is something to be said for the power that consumers have, and we can certainly drive trends in the market um, when we want to work together. And it's easier or It's not always as easy to get people to work together as it should be, even for something as simple as, you know, limiting your plastic waste or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, when it comes to purchasing, I'm unlike you, unable to really read if people want to hear about it or not. So (laughs) it doesn't matter where I am. You're going to hear about it. Are you an overall optimist for the trend of sustainability in the U.S. and North America? In what sense? Optimistic about what? Optimistic that in the near future, we'll be able to make reasonable efforts to mitigate our impact. With nothing else changing? With thing, well, I guess it's up to you. It depends on how much you think is going to change. So I would say no. I mean, I'd like to be. I know I sound very optimistic. Uh, I am optimistic about our potential, extremely optimistic about our potential. In fact, I wouldn't even say I'm optimistic. I just know the potential that we all have. Without a catalyst, though, a real catalyst, I don't see things changing mm-hmm. because the the – I'm not sure what you would even call it. I guess the inertia, maybe, but that doesn't even feel like the right word. The the feeling of kind of running in a hamster wheel, doing the same thing over and over again, feels increasingly strong. In spite of the, in spite of the small changes that might be made, mm. but the overall vision is, you know, when people talk about a sustainable future, it's no one's really imagining very much. They're imagining the exact same world but with solar panels or the exact same world but with wind turbines. People aren't imagining, I mean really imagining what it would look like if we were to not consume as much as we consume, which is at the crux of all of this. As I'm looking around this Airbnb and going, what in the world? Why? Mm-hmm. Why is there so much stuff in here? Almost all of it is decorative, but it's not even, it's not like the people here made it by hand. They didn't find the wood and paint it themselves and make something beautiful. They bought a bunch of mass-produced stuff. 
and then had it shipped here. You know, at first I was thinking you might be pretty rough to sit next to at a bar, but as I'm hearing myself speak, I'm like, yeah, there's a reason I don't go to bars. <laughs> is this like what your chat is like? If someone were to sit next to you, is this what it's like? Yeah, more or less. I mean, we're, we're across the country and we're able to have this conversation. So hopefully if somebody was next to me at a bar top, we'd be able to do the same. Do you look for something that they're doing or something that they're wearing as an entry point? Or how do you, as I, I meant that question, how do you bring it up? Because for me, I think it's often related to something that I'm purchasing or something that I'm doing in the moment. Well, now you make it seem like I'm hunting down people at bars to have this <laughs> <No>. conversation. <laughs> no, 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 no. I just, I think it's more just curiosity because I don't know how to strike up this conversation like sitting next to somebody on a bus. I only really know how to do it in a specific context. So I'm thinking for my own edification and perhaps for the edification of other people who might want to talk about this but don't know how to talk about it without sounding like, I don't know, like you're about to launch into a monologue or preaching at somebody. Mm. How do you authentically bring it up and have it be a meaningful conversation? Well, I think it usually starts with something like, I was listening to this podcast the other day and but <laughs> so if you uh hear something interesting and you want to bring it up to somebody just make sure to not overextend your understanding of a topic and just be honest and you know the more honest connections that people have between each other the more we can relate to each other and the more easier it will be to have these types of discussions but I know from a fact from a personal anecdote of yours that while trapped on a plane with a gentleman, you were able to have this discussion. Might be an a anecdote for another time. Oh, no, I can share it. That's a good one. Yeah, please. Uh, so I was on a plane from Houston to the Bay Area. And it was, I don't remember when, it must have been 2015, 2016, something like that, early days of my green lab. And I sat next to a guy who, I don't know why he was flying commercial, but he owned all the oil rigs off the coast in Santa Barbara. And if you've ever been to Santa Barbara, you know the oil rigs are kind of an eyesore along the shoreline. And it, so it was interesting that I would be sitting next to this guy. And I think it, the conversation started by my asking him what he did, or maybe he asked me what he mm -hmm. did, you know, the standard kind of what do you do situation. And when he said that to me, I asked him if he enjoyed his work. And he kind of shrugged. And after, I mean, we were there for, is a four-hour flight or four-and-a-half-hour flight. So over the course of that flight, it became clear that he really didn't enjoy that work. And not only did he not enjoy it, but the rigs weren't actually producing enough to be economically viable anymore, or at least not to make him the kind of money that he wanted. But he didn't have or couldn't see a path where he could just stop doing that work. And yeah, I was relentless for four and a half hours. What is it that's in your heart? What is it you want to be doing? What is it that brings you joy? And why in the world would you continue doing something that doesn't align with you and, incidentally, is poisoning all of us? 
and by the end, I don't really know what happened, but in the, you know after the plane ride, but by the end, he was really excited about the possibility of moving to where was it? Was it the Alps? I think that he had been skiing. I think the French Alps. He was coming back from that about moving there and starting a little like bed and breakfast where people could come and experience the beauty of the Alps. He was blown away by how, by how beautiful it was there. And I thought, wow, what a much better use of someone's being and their energy to bring that kind of joy to the world than these oil rigs that they aren't even connected to or want to have in any way. So yeah, okay, sometimes if you're trapped next to me on a plane, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's all I can say about that. I remember just being amazed the first time you told me that story. And I think it, it goes right back to what we talked about in the beginning is that there are plenty of people in the environmental movement who would have just ridden that guy off as, you know, completely unsavable or, you know, an enemy even or somebody to be fought against. And instead, you just saw him as a guy who you could have a conversation with and a guy who had his own inspirations and his own streams and just maybe needed to, a little bit of guidance or a little bit of realignment in his life. And, you know, hopefully he's out there living his dream in some beautiful space and, you know, being a, a beacon for the opportunities that we could all do if we just figure out what really is our alignment with the world and what makes us happy. Mm-hmm. I think about him pretty often and wonder what became of him, especially when I'm in Southern California driving by those rigs because they're still there. He told me they would be very expensive to decommission and that it would take a really long time. So I'm not surprised to see them there one way or another. But I do wonder. I hope, man who sat next to me on the plane, if you ever hear this podcast, reach out. I'd love to know what became of you. Did you buy that chalet? We're going to do a follow-up. Later this year, we'll get him on the show, we'll get his life story, and we'll figure out what happened. Oh, we totally should do that. That's a really good idea. I think I sent him an email. I should have his contact information. There you go. Man on a plane. Get in contact, please. You raise a really good point, though, here about, about being in community and meeting people where they are. And I imagine that's something that you have to do all the time with your work. And it sounds like it's something that you're doing all the time anyway out in life. And I'm wondering if you could speak to that a little bit more about what that's like to, to not write people off, to meet them where they're at and embrace them rather than judge them. Yeah, I think for anybody who works in an industry that's seeking large change in the universe or in the world or whatever your geographical scale you're working on is, um, it can feel like you're at conflict a lot of the time. And living your life in conflict or seeking conflict is a difficult and often, you know, strenuous way to live your life. And it's so much easier um, to seek to meet people in the middle or to just see them as they are and to start with that acceptance and then work towards your goal. Um, you know, seeing everybody as your enemy might make it really clear what you're trying to do, but it's eventually going to make it more difficult to achieve what you want to do. Um, so I think it's, it's really important that 
we understand that we're a humanity, we're all the same people, and we all want to see the best possible world, even in our slightly different versions, um, to be there for the longest possible time and to benefit the most amount of people. You know, it's right down to the, the golden rule of do what you want others to do to you or, you know, whatever the saying is. Just take it one day at a time, treat people like people, and you'll be much more effective in your work that way. Yeah, I agree. It's been interesting being here in a different part of the country where people's perspectives are really different, particularly in sustainability. The use of styrofoam and plastic bags still, Mm -hmm. which is shocking to me because I haven't seen a plastic bag in probably a decade. And then I come to a state and it's just everywhere I go, do you want a plastic bag? And it's hard for me not to go, wait, what? No, put that away. Are you crazy? What's wrong with you? Stop. Yeah, it's been really interesting to figure out how to have these conversations with people who are really in such a different place and also to recognize where a lot of people are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, you know, the U.S. is its greatest strength is how different we are in lots of ways. You know, this diversity is what makes it so amazing. And in context of environmentalism, in certain places in the U.S., you know, the early movement was seen more as an attack on certain people's way of life or even their way of, you know, supporting their family. And that kind of left this original sour taste in their mouth um, towards these kind of principles or ideas and, you know, completely justifiable. So, so, uh, So if somebody was trying to take away my means to support my family or to stop me from doing the thing that I had done my entire life, you know, it would seem like it was an attack on me personally. And then later, you know, it's become more where environmental services can start to help these people as well. And it's difficult to sort of move between those two things where, you know, some group understands that they're trying to help, but they're doing it in the wrong way or doing it in an inconsiderate way. And that's just, that's no way to move forward in this, in this movement. Um, so I think the way to do it is to be considerate and reasonable and treat people like people, like we've been saying, and all these things. And, you know, it's just amazing though, compared to other places in the world, how the U.S. can have so much difference in its regional policy and groups and things like that. But um, there's no reason we can't quickly and hopefully very quickly become a leader in this space. You experienced that, I think, in Washington within just two hours between Seattle and where you went to school. Yeah, and Michigan is no different as well. Um, You know, certain places just by geographical variance and then, you know, the main industry. On the western side of Washington today, you'll see large technology groups, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, um, even Boeing, large but technical manufacturing. And then you go two hours east and you're in um, predominantly agricultural areas. And that just tends to lend itself towards ideological change. And it's, uh, it's noticeable, but you know we're still the same people. We still live in Washington. We still have to follow the same rules and we still have to protect the same spaces and we get the same benefits. So 
it's important that we work together to be able to protect this place because this place is special, I think. Mm-hmm. I agree. So are you optimistic? Uh, it's changed over time, you know. When I was really young, I was like, yeah, we could do this, optimistic. And you get a little older and you go, man, we got a lot of problems. I don't know about this. And then you get to somewhere in the middle where you know that technology alone isn't going to solve these problems. We're not going to invent our way out of this. Um, It's just not going to happen even with the best and brightest working on it. It's going to require that people think critically about what they really want and how they want this world to be. So between the technology required and the ability for people to come together and have reasonable discourse and come to an agreement, that's big challenges. But we've been facing big challenges ever since the beginning of society. So you have to believe we'll we'll be able to make it work, but you never know. (laughs) Right up until that last bit, I was thinking, wow, you're so (laughs) optimistic. That's so great. I know that, you know, I'm going to do my best in my lifetime. And if I do that, then whatever hole I end up in, I'll, I'll be smiling at least at the end of it. So. So tell me a bit about where you see opportunities for sustainability in music. And I know for people listening, this probably comes out of left fields. But Gus and I have chatted before, and I'm well aware of his love of music. I think that's fair to say, right? Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, ever since I was a little kid, I've always had some connection to music. Um, my parents pushed me pretty young uh, into music to learn music listen to music. My dad was a big fan of jazz music. Uh, So growing up, we were always listening to jazz together in the car. And then I played in jazz band and in band programs all my life. And then as I got older, I started teaching myself different instruments and got really into electronic music and things like that. So very avid participant in the live music scene as best I can. And then I started to see these opportunities to combine my passion for music with my understanding of sustainability. And uh, I'm definitely not the first person to think about this. There are lots of organizations now popping up um, in groups and leaders. And, you know, people will remember old concert tours back in the day talking about wanting to be sustainable, you know, as recently as like Coldplay doing this and things like that. There's just such this powerful connection between people who enjoy the same kind of music and even people who don't enjoy the same kind of music, but just love music in general. It's really powerful and it makes you feel in the moment and it makes you feel connected and it makes you feel um, like there's something worth sticking around for. And so I started to combine that passion with my understanding of sustainability. And we've talked about this a lot, me and Allison, and some of the big opportunities are things like um, removing plastic. Um, You know, when you go to a show and you look over and see the garbage can piled over with uh, empty plastic cups, you think, you know, why isn't there an option for reusable or why aren't we just using aluminum cans and things like that? There's opportunity to reinvent venues to be more friendly towards public transportation, for example. 
There's opportunity for tour industries to offset their carbon emissions when they fly. Obviously, airline travel is a big contributor to carbon emissions and emissions in general. So being able to offset those is huge. There's even some wild technologies like I mentioned the Coldplay tour. I think they had a shock absorbent floor that was able to partially generate electricity by the fans dancing and jumping up and down, which is just like, I don't know who thought of that, but that was a brilliant idea. So for somebody who just loves to be a part of live music, I really hope it can be a leader in the space of sustainability and talk about how something that serves absolutely no purpose other than the general happiness and enjoyment of people should also be something that is not going to take away from future generations. And so I hope that's something that in the future I can be a part of and be aligned with. When you first brought this to my attention, I so appreciated it because it was one of those blind spots that I'd had. And I think there's a lot of those that we all have of things we kind of are used to doing, used to seeing a certain way and just don't see anymore. And as soon as you brought it to my attention, now every time I'm at a venue, I'm like, oh, there's so much more that could be done here. And I'm hoping that for people listening, just hearing about this not only opens up your eyes at a at a concert, but also maybe just makes you think for a minute, well, what else do I do where I could bring this perspective where there might be opportunities because I think this is what it's going to take really to change things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it, it's always impossible or I should say that a lot of people don't notice things until they're pointed out in front of them. And that's just a reality of when you see something every day, you stop noticing it and it becomes a natural habit for all kinds of harmful activities that people do. And, you know, sometimes just as we were talking about, by having a conversation with somebody, you can enlighten them to these things. And, you know, I think sustainability in music is just one of those things where, because I'm, for whatever reason, naturally attracted to it, um, I think I'll be able to work well in that space and be able to help people. And then people will realize that whatever they're passionate about, you know, they can combine that passion with a benefit to other people as well. And that's how we end up with some of the most powerful and um, useful ideas ever. Mm -hmm. I think when we get to a place where sustainability isn't separate from, but it's just simply integrated into whatever it is that's in your heart, you know? Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true that it's not an original idea to live sort of symbiotically with the world. You know, there were indigenous groups doing that thousands of years ago, and we strayed away from those ideas for the sort of benefit of economic growth and globalization. And that's given us lots of great things. And, you know, modern medicine and all this stuff has come from these kind of global efforts. But at the end of the day, we still sort of have to move back to this idea of working in harmony with the world because it's the only truly sustainable way to live. Like I said, I don't think this global technology and modernization effort will ever get so advanced that we can just stop whatever 
you know, climate or environmental impact is growing, you know, it doesn't matter how well you can engineer a seawall, eventually <laughs> sea level rise will get you, you know, just look at Venice or, you know, all these places that can invest or Florida, Miami, billions of dollars to try to prevent something that if we just lived more in harmony with, we would never have to worry about. And that's not to say these are simple solutions. You know, I don't want to downplay how immensely complicated and extensive this work will need to be and how quickly it will need to be done to reduce some of these uh, impacts. But it's something that I think is, is worthwhile and necessary. That idea that you just said about living in harmony with our surroundings as opposed to building walls or trying to control them. I mean, that applies well beyond sustainability, doesn't it? Absolutely. It, it applies to a greater way of thinking and it applies to the way that you treat people. It applies to everything that you do in your regular life. If you want to separate yourself and be isolated and think that you have the right answer and not listen to other people, you'll end up trapping yourselves in your own walls. And it's just so much easier if you take them down and realize that there's a lot of beauty and a lot of information. And if you can respect other people, your life will be so much better just by being out there. Okay. I mean, talking to you, now I have more hope, I feel. <laughs> Mostly because I think, well, if your generation is able to think like this and bring this to bear on all aspects of your lives, then, then yeah, things will change. Because it's, it's, not a, it's not an accident that the way we treat each other, the way we treat ourselves is the same as the way we treat the environment. I mean, we could record another hour and have a pessimistic version of the same podcast if you'd like. No, 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 no. It's just, I didn't want to go out and depress your general audience with the reality of the situation we might be in. Okay, what's the pessimistic view? Share it. The pessimistic view is we have the ability and the knowledge to solve the world's greatest problems right now. I'm thinking specifically um, climate change, uh, the food system or world hunger, um, and then sort of these sociological issues we all face. We absolutely have the technology and the understanding to implement these change, changes if society, or more correctly, world governments really wanted to. Um, but we don't because we're humans and humans make mistakes. And there's a very good chance that the mistakes we make might cause the end of society. I'm not saying Armageddon is coming next week. That's probably not going to happen. But if we don't do something, something very bad will eventually happen. Or something will happen. Something will happen. Something we didn't see coming. Yeah. I'm not sure that's pessimistic. Maybe it's just realistic. Or maybe it's just, I mean, maybe rather than assigning a good or a bad judgment to it, maybe it's just another, another way things could play out. Yeah, you could just call it the human condition. Or it could be what ends up happening if we don't choose to do something different. There's lots of options. There's lots of potential outcomes. Yeah. It's just a matter of, well, what are we going to choose? It's on us. 
Yeah. Okay, I'm reframing it. Not pessimistic or optimistic, just simply different choices, different outcomes, different opportunities. And if every single one of us listening to this or who's part of this podcast just goes and does what you do, just goes out into the world and actually just talks about these things, not in a, you know, not in a pushy way, but just in a, hey, have you noticed? Hey, have you thought about it this way? It might actually start to make a difference, especially if those ideas and those behaviors translate into something, at least in our society right now, translate into something financial. Mm-hmm. Truly, I mean, most of the things that we complain about would not exist if we stopped supporting them financially. Yeah, I think you're right. That that's a huge driver of it. Going to take a lot to reverse our. Uh sort of society of wanting more and needing more and consumerism. But Allison, you're, you're a great marker for that opportunity. <laughs> Thank you. It's something I can't help but talk about because it just feels, it feels like a symptom of, of a much deeper issue, which is our general dissatisfaction with our own existence mm. and a need to try to fill that void with things be they tangible things or intangible things or distractions or whatever it is. So you think this is something we did to ourselves? Yes, very much so. But I don't think we did it intentionally. It's just, it's almost a consequence of what we've created. And we just have to be comfortable enough looking at what we've created and say, yeah, this maybe doesn't work. And create something else. Kind of like having a childlike mindset about it, you know? You watch kids build things, they build them, and then two seconds later, they're like, okay, I'm done, and then they just unbuild it. Oh my gosh, have I ever told you about the box exercise that I do with adults? No, please elaborate. It's such a great little exercise. So I do a lot of work with adults, and I ask them to make a box, an origami box, and... It's not that easy to make. It's not that hard, but it takes some doing to make an origami box. You have to, the folds are easy, but the actual putting it together takes a bit of doing. And then when they're done, they're pretty pleased with the box. And maybe it takes 10 minutes. I mean, we're not talking hours here. And then I say, okay, now undo the box. Do you have any idea how many people just hold on to their boxes and say, no, 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 I just, but I just made this. I don't, I don't want to undo it. I just put in all this effort. And I can't help but laugh because I think, well, I mean, you could, I'm not asking you to tear it up. I'm asking you just to undo it. You could make it again. No, 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 no. It's such a hard thing. And I think it's so illustrative of our, our desire to hold on to things as adults once we've created them without realizing that it's not meant to be permanent. You just, you create it, you undo it. You create it, you undo it, just like a kid. Yeah, I think the, maybe the exercise should be framed that the important part is not the box that you make. It's that you have the knowledge to make a box now. Uh Uh-huh, exactly. Yeah, you can do it whenever you want or whenever you please, but you don't have to hold on to it. So funny. Gus, this has been so much fun. Thank you. Yeah.
This has been, uh, I mean, me and Allison, thankfully, are able to have these conversations pretty frequently and only occasionally where they be recorded and broadcast out to the general public. <laughs> but uh, most of the time, they're a highlight of my week. So I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. They're also a highlight of my week as well. I really appreciate your being here and sharing your perspective and sharing a bit about your work. Well, I'm coming back when you trace down the man from the airplane because I want to be on the interview. Yeah. Okay. I have to find this guy to remember his, his name. If anybody listening has any idea who this person might be, just based on the contacts, please send a message to my green lab. Somebody from there will make sure it finds its way to me. Yeah. Or if you own any other oil drills anywhere in the world <laughs> and you want to have a conversation, please join us. We'd be happy to have you. Honestly. Yeah. Anytime. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right. I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. Bye.